So how many of you have ever gone to a restaurant and been given one of those evaluation forms where they asked you to let them know how your experience went here at the restaurant, you know? And, and second question, how many of you actually took the time to fill out the evaluation form? I mean, not many of us, right? I mean, there are some of you anal retentive people who actually do that, all right? But most of us, most of us won't take the time because because it really wasn't that distinct. I mean, maybe if I went to Chick-fil-A and I'm going to get a, you know, a free sandwich out of the evaluation, I might do it. Or if the service was just super good or the service was super bad, I might take the time to do it. But typically, it's just really nothing too distinct about it, nothing that distinguishes it. And, and this doesn't just go for restaurants. It, it goes for lots of things that ask you to do evaluations, from the stores that we shop at to the classes that we take to the hotels that we stay in. If you're anything like me, you typically don't bother to fill out the evaluation because there really wasn't just anything different about it. It was just normal. It got the job done, sure, but it didn't distinguish itself in any way. There was nothing that would have you drawn back to it. Unfortunately, that is the exact same way that many people feel about Christians and about the churches that they worship in and the communities that they fellowship in. That we're indistinct, just like any other religious group of people kind of blend in. Where are they? Can't see them in the big picture. They don't stand out. Or worse, they think we're a bunch of hypocrites and frauds. And you know what? That's, that's really sad. That's a travesty of tragic proportions because we are called to be distinct. We are called to be different. We are called to be lights that shine to the world. Why? Because of our faith in Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit transforming us in His love, transforming us and working in us and through us. Now today, as we continue on in our sermon series, The Greatest Job on Earth, We're going to be studying John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A very famous passage, a passage that many of you have probably heard before. And we're going to see the evaluation that Jesus Christ invites the world to make of us. He invites the world to evaluate us. And there's only one question on the evaluation. Do they love one another? Do they love one another? And after we look at that question, we're going to then apply this passage to our call to make disciples who know how to make disciples. So as you turn to John chapter 13, I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to speak your truth, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, that you would speak to me, You would speak to all of us, that we would learn what it means to love one another as we look first and foremost at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. Thank you for his death 
for me. And I pray that we would all draw closer to him tonight. We pray in his name. Amen. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, it is evident if you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the past two sermons in the series were, were all about having an all-in love for Jesus Christ and, and submitting to him as our Lord as well as our Savior, as our Adonai, our Master, as well as our Savior. And we learned that if we're going to be effective at making disciples who know how to make disciples, we personally have to be all in with our faith totally surrendered to our Lord. But we need to teach them how to do that as well. This, this all-in approach, it, it sums up the greatest commandment, doesn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. First given in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and then taught throughout the New Testament as well. Now today we're going to turn our attention to the second greatest commandment. That we love others as we love ourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. First given in Leviticus 19.18 and also repeated all throughout the New Testament. So it's important that we see from the outset that when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to our Matthew 28 call to go make disciples of all nations, the second most important expectation of that job description is to make disciples who know how to love one another. That we love those who we are discipling so that they can love others. Now let's read verse 34 again, the first verse in our passage. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. As you would probably guess, the Greek word for love here is agape, meaning that we're commanded to love others in the same unconditional, selfless way that God loves us. But what I want us to see here is that Jesus, he, he refined this discipleship job description with this command. This was a refined job description. That's why he says it's a new commandment. Now, as we already mentioned, this command was already given in Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, Christ isn't introducing a brand new idea here. Instead, Christ is refining the command to bring it into alignment with the new covenant that was going to be established through him and the new expectations of those who are in the new covenant. In fact, if you look at the Greek word for new here, if we break that down, it actually means fresh or remade. You ever put a fresh coat of paint on a car or or paint a room? The room isn't new, the car isn't new, but it's been freshened up, it's been spruced up, It, it, it looks new, but it's not brand new. It's the same thing here. Christ didn't give 
a brand new command. He didn't invent something that never existed before. He put a new coat of paint on an old command, and, and he's showing it to us in light of the new covenant expectations. So how? How did he do this? How is this new? Why is this new? What's new about this command? Well, we're going to look at three ways, three ways that this command is new, that it was fresh, that it was refined. We see a refined audience of the command. We see a refined object of the command. And we see a refined extent of the command. So first, the refined audience of the command. Unlike the Leviticus 19.18 command, this fresh commandment is specifically given to the church of Jesus Christ. It is specifically given to those who have Christ as their Lord and Savior. It's made directly to his closest followers, to those who were learning how to make disciples who make disciples. See, Christ is in the upper room with his disciples, and and they're talking, and they're eating a Passover meal, and some of them are arguing with each other, and, and then he washes their feet, and then after he's done washing their feet, he gives them this new charge. But if you flip back to verses 30 and 31 of this same chapter, you'll see that before, right before Jesus gave this fresh command, he sent Judas, the betrayer, away. He sent him to go and do what he was going to do. Why did he do that? Because this command wasn't for him. It's only for the church. It's only for genuine followers of Jesus Christ, not those who are pretending to follow Jesus Christ because it suits them, it's convenient for them, it helps to get where they want to be but those who have genuinely surrendered Christ. That's who it's for. Why? Well, that brings us to the second fresh aspect of this command. It has a refined object. In the Leviticus passage, and in all the teachings up to that point in history, the object of your love was always your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, in Luke 12, Jesus has a discussion with a lawyer on this very point. And the lawyer tried to pull a fast one, tried to trick Jesus. Of course, we all know you can never trust an attorney, right? And so Jesus, he, he took it to the lawyer, right? And he turned the tables on the attorney, and then he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's crucial that we recognize we are absolutely still called to love our neighbors. That hasn't disappeared. There are all kinds of instruction throughout the New Testament that we are to love our neighbors. But here, in this command, it is specifically saying that we are to love one another. That is what makes us unique. That is what makes us distinct. Yes, we are to love all people, but it is of first importance that we love one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's so important that we see 
This isn't a command to love others outside of the church. There are other commands for that. And, I, and so many people take this verse and they apply it to that. And it's true, we do need to love others outside of the church, absolutely. But that's not what Jesus was getting at here. We need to love one another first and foremost. Why? Why is that? Well, if I am loving my brother and sister here in this body, in this room, and in the other churches in the Lehigh Valley, and wherever the Lord may take me to, the Congo, Europe, wherever... If I am loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, that is going to make the world take notice and it will give me opportunity then to love them. See, loving our neighbor flows out of our love for one another. That's how it works. We have more opportunity to love our neighbor when we are loving ourselves, when we are loving one another. Because that makes us distinct. The world doesn't do that. The world doesn't operate that way. And that leads us to the third and most important fresh aspect of this command. The refined extent of the command. The refined extent of the command. Jesus said in the second half of this verse, Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. See, the standard is no longer that you love others like you love yourself. That was the old standard. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Which for a lot of us is kind of like a little loophole. I don't really love myself that much, so I don't really need to love my neighbor very very well. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You love one another like I have loved you. A way, way, way higher standard. And that point was made extremely vivid for the disciples in the upper room because if you look back at the beginning of the passage, you see that before Jesus gave this command, and in order to illustrate the extent of his love for them, what did he do? He, the master, he, the rabbi, he, the teacher, he took on the form of the lowest servant, and he got down in the dirt, on the floor, and he washed their feet, their grimy, caked dirty feet. I know how much some of you really love feet, right? You can imagine this was not the most pleasant of jobs, yet Jesus did it because he wanted to show his disciples how much he loved them and how they were to love one another because the reality is none of those disciples would have done that for each other. Not in a million years. How do I know that? Because if you look over in Luke chapter 22, which is the parallel account to this, you see that right before Jesus washed their feet, what were the disciples talking about? They were arguing amongst themselves over which one of them was the greatest. Are you kidding me? And then Jesus, who was the greatest, washes their feet. Do you see that? It's like turning everything upside down. And this was just a foretaste. This was just a foreshadowing of the true example of love that Christ would take upon his shoulders in a few short hours from here. In a few short hours, Jesus would be battered and beaten, spat upon and mocked, stripped naked, 
and nailed to a cross because of how much he loved those disciples. And not only how much he loved those disciples, because of how much he loves you and because of how much he loves me. That is the love of Christ. In fact, two two chapters later, in John chapter 15, Jesus repeats this new commandment in the the same discussion in the upper room, and he specifically states that his love for them and for us is expressed most fully in his willingness to die for us. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, for his brothers, for one another. And you know what? That is an impossible standard for us to live up to if we haven't experienced that love for ourselves first. If I have not experienced the love of Christ for myself, there is no way I will be able to love others like Christ has loved me. Unless I recognize that Jesus Christ loved me so much that he died, he died for me in my place and saved me when I couldn't save myself. That because he loved me so much, he saved me from eternal death so that I could have eternal life and live a life of joyful thanksgiving and service and bringing glory and honor to his name. That's what he saved me from and what he saved me for. But he saved me because he loves me. Unless I've experienced that by putting my faith in him and trusting in him and and releasing my sin and my trying to do it on my own and accept that free gift of grace, I won't be able to live up to this standard. Unless I've experienced that and I've been transformed by the truth of the gospel, there's no way I'm going to be able to be distinct. That's what 1 John chapter 4 meant when it said, we love because he first loved us. That's what that verse means. I can only love because he's loved me first. Why do you think the disciples were arguing with each other about who was the greatest? Because they hadn't yet experienced the fullest extent of Christ's love. He he washed their feet and gave them a foretaste of what he was about to do, but it wasn't until after his death and resurrection that they truly experienced Christ's love. It wasn't until after they saw what it meant to truly surrender to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as their God. And they received the Holy Spirit that would begin to transform them from the inside out and work in them and through them that they would be able to love one another. And when they got that, when they finally saw Jesus in the full brilliance and glory that he is, that's when they were able to make disciples who could make disciples because they truly knew what it meant 
to love one another as Jesus Christ had loved them. We can't love like this unless and until we surrender to Jesus Christ and put our faith and trust in him alone. But once we do that, once we do that, it changes everything. He gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to be able to love like He loves. And He begins to wash away all of those things that would keep us from loving. Slowly but surely. Sure, I don't just turn it into a love machine, right? As soon as I accept Jesus. But it happens over time. Yeah, our sinful nature is still going to cause us to mess up. But when we humbly submit to the Lord and love Him, we'll begin to learn to love, just like Christ loves us. And this is critically important because Jesus says in the very next verse, our love for one another is the single most distinguishing thing that will show us to be his disciples. And this brings us to verse 35, where we see that we're going to be reviewed according to our distinctiveness. We're going to be reviewed according to our distinctiveness. Verse 35 says this, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus states very clearly here that it is our love for one another that makes us distinct, that makes us unique, that sets us apart, that shows that we are holy, and that the watching world is going to evaluate us on our love for one another. We're not going to be known by our wealth, we're not going to be known by our education. We're not going to be known by our talents or our abilities or our positions of influence or our position of authority, not by our good deeds to the impoverished world, but by our love for one another. Our love for one another. Now remember, this is agape love, the unconditional, selfless love of God. It's not some, some mushy, gushy, feelings-driven Eros type of love, that, that romantic type of love, nor is it the, the brotherly philia type of love. It is agape, the selfless love of God. Because the reality is that there are going to be some Christians who I don't get along with super well. <gasps> That's okay. Or there are going to be other Christians who I don't spend a ton of time with. That's okay, too. I mean, how can I say that? Well, because Jesus is the example for us, isn't he? And, and if you look at Scripture, who did Jesus hang out with the most? I mean, he had his 72, right, who he kind of had as disciples, and then he had his 12. Well, there's a difference there between the 72 and the 12. And then from that, he had Peter, James, and John, who he took on, like, special field trips. Come on, guys, we're going to go raise this kid from the dead. Let's go, right? So he had them who he took special. And then there was the one, there was the one, John, who Scripture says, who he really loved. Who, who reclined on his chest at the Last Supper and who he had a special, deep affection for. So even Jesus modeled to us the fact that within 
your group of one another, there's going to be degrees. You don't have to be Mr. Buddy Buddy with every single Christian, okay? But you do have to love every single Christian. Agape, unconditional, selfless love for one another. Have to be willing to put aside your selfishness and pride. I have to be willing to put aside myself, die to myself, just like Jesus Christ died for me. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. It's that attitude of love and selflessness for one another that shows whether we're Christ's disciples. Whether we are living out the Matthew 4.19 call to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Our love for one another shows if I am following Christ. It's our love for one another that shows if I'm being transformed by Christ. It's our love that shows if I am living out Christ's mission to make disciples who know how to make disciples. And the early Christians, they got rave reviews when the world turned in their evaluations with ancient pagan writers saying, Behold how these Christians love one another. They love one another almost before they even know each other. The early church was distinct because of their love for one another. The question, of course, then is, what does the watching world say about the church today? And we don't even need to look at the universal church. Let's just look at us. Let's just look at the body of believers in this room right here. Do I put myself and my selfish desires aside for my Christian brother and sister? Do I do that? I mean, let, let's, let's be honest with ourselves now. When was the last time that you can point to, that I can point to, that we went out of our way to love one of our Christian brothers and sisters? Maybe they were in need, maybe they weren't. There was an opportunity to love them. When was the last time I went and did that? When was the last time I saw a place that I could serve and I said, you know what? I can put my selfishness aside, my schedule aside, I could do that. And that could be serving someone one-on-one. That could be serving the body as a whole. Or, or how about the harder question? Let's flip it around a little bit. How often do I ignore the opportunity to love a fellow believer. Oh, someone else will do that. I got this that I got to do. If you don't like the way that you're answering these questions, I have one word for us. And I say us because I was reminding myself of this word all week. And it's a beautiful word. It's 
really not a word, it's a name. And his name is Jesus. We've got to get our eyes back on Jesus. None of us can just will ourselves to love others more. I'm just going to do it myself with my own. It doesn't work that way. We need to see the glory of the love of Christ for us. That's the only way it's going to happen. And remember how much he was willing to give up for me so that I can give the same to others. When we focus on Christ's love for us, we can be spurred on to do the same for our brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter if you like spending time with them. It doesn't matter if you're going to invite them over to your house for a cookout. Just love them like Jesus loves. Because here's the truth. I want us all to hear this. Tell this to myself all week. You and I, we are a lot less lovable than we think we are. We're a lot less lovable than we think we are. And yet Jesus died for me, and he died for you. Praise God, right? Amen. Think about that. It's, it's my pride and my selfishness that keeps me from loving my brothers and sisters, and yet it's precisely because I am so prideful and selfish that Jesus had to die for me. Isn't that amazing? He loved me in spite of my ugliness, and he died for me, and he gives me the power now that I put my faith in him to put aside my ugliness and to love others. The power of love through the cross of Christ is absolutely amazing and transformational. We've got to get this, and we've got to be transformed in this way, because if we don't, And Scripture says that we're just pretending. We're just playing make-believe. We're just wannabes, fakers, posers, who aren't fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. We're just deceiving ourselves with our church attendance, with our talk in the Christian talk, reading a couple Bible verses, maybe praying sometimes, doing a couple bucks in the plate. I believe in Jesus. Great. So do the demons. Does that make you feel better? But the demons don't love one another. The demons don't have the love of Jesus Christ coursing through them, overflowing like a cup being poured into, loving others. If we don't have that love, we don't have Jesus, truly have Jesus, and we're no better than the demons. It's a harsh, scary truth. But that's the word of God. First John chapter 3 puts it this way. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness 
is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. If I don't love one another, if I don't have the love of Jesus Christ filling me and transforming me because of true faith and submission and surrender to him, then all of those things, all of those Christian things are just pious platitudes that ultimately end in death and hell. At my undergraduate university, I took a religious studies class. And the professor there told us the story, a true story, of something that he did to one of his classes years before. So on the door to the class, he put a big sign that said, class has been moved across campus, don't be late. And so naturally, the students that arrived to the class saw the sign recognized that they were going to be late, and so they started hurrying on their way all the way across campus. Well, the professor hired an actor to play a beggar. See, the professor had been teaching the students all about the life of Jesus Christ. And he had been teaching them about the love of Christ, and he wanted to see if they were actually getting it. So this beggar was positioned right between the two classrooms, between them, and as you can guess, not a single one of the students stopped for the beggar as he went up to them and just politely, kindly asked them, please, just help me any way you can. Anything you could do would be a blessing to me. Of course, when the students got to the class and the professor let them in on his little exercise, they were all (laughs) deeply afraid. (laughs) They had been studying the life of Jesus. They had the knowledge. But there was no transformation. I wonder how well their evaluation from the professor looked. The point is this, we can't hear Christ's call for us to love one another like he loves us and then think we're okay not following it. Because if that's us, we really don't get Christ's love and we'll not only fail the world's evaluation, but we'll fail God's evaluation too. But when we do love this way, when we do have the love of Christ filling us and overflowing to those around us, to our brother and sisters in Christ, the world will take notice. And when they come to us and they say, how, how can you be that loving? How can you be that selfless? That's when we can point them straight to Jesus Christ. And we can say, Jesus Christ loved me with every fiber of his being, and that is why I can love you and why I can love my Christian brother and sister this way. As John MacArthur said, 
The church may be orthodox in its doctrine and vigorous in its proclamation of the truth, but that will not persuade unbelievers unless believers love each other. But not only will the watching world take notice, those who we are discipling should take notice as well. And that's the final point I want to make today about this passage. That in this command, Christ provides for us a renewed call to discipleship. A renewed call to discipleship. Jesus is telling his disciples that they need to love one another just like he loves them. And that this love for one another, that's going to show, that's going to prove that they're his disciples. That is the mark of true Christian discipleship. So then knowing that, knowing that in this series of the greatest job on earth, where we're learning how to make disciples who know how to make disciples, we, as disciple makers, have to do two really important things. We have to love one another, right? But we need to teach others. We need to teach those who we are pouring into and discipling how to love one another like Jesus loved them. This is something that we need to be teaching. So I just want to look briefly at five ways, five ways that Jesus Christ loved his disciples so that we can know how to love our disciples and how to teach them how to love others, how to love their disciples. Now, we've, we've been learning how to make disciples who may make, make disciples. Practically speaking, tonight, I want to look at how do I love disciples who know how to love disciples. So, number one, as we've already seen, Christ's love for his disciples was marked by selfless service to them. By selfless service. He put them before himself. He washed their feet. He died for them. And he constantly led them back to God the Father. If we're going to love disciples, then we've got to selflessly serve and teach them how to do the same thing. See, discipleship isn't at all about what I get out of it. If I am discipling someone, it's not how they can serve me like the rabbis of Jesus' day thought. I have all these disciples, and they're going to serve me, their rabbi. No, it's not like that at all. It's about how I can serve them. That is the key. So if you want to be an effective disciple-maker, learn to serve one another like Jesus served and teach others to do the same. Secondly, Jesus loved his disciples by steadfastly and patiently bearing with them even though they just didn't get it most of the time. (laughs) I mean, we see this throughout the Gospels. Oftentimes, they just did not grasp what Jesus was telling them. And he explained it over and over again. I'm going to have to die, guys. What? I'm God, guys. I'm the Messiah. Oh, good. He's going to kick out the Romans. They just didn't get it. And yet, Jesus bared with them patiently. And when he gave them instructions and showed them what to do and sent them out on tasks like when they were trying to cast the demon out of the guy in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus was up on the mountain, all transfigured, and then he came back down, and they were like, it's just not working, Jesus. There's something, you know, we're doing wrong here. He didn't let his frustration and his annoyance 
cast them aside. He pushed through that and patiently and graciously loved them. He loved his disciples by continually teaching them the truth, showing them the lies they believed, correcting their thinking, and building their faith. That takes patience. That takes time. So discipleship doesn't just happen, boop, they get everything when I'm pouring into someone. It takes time. It takes years. I mean, for those of you who are parents, when you have a child, they don't come out of the womb and you spend a couple hours with them once a week and then all of a sudden they're an adult who can operate on their own. It takes years and years and years and years, right? Even after they've grown up and gotten out of the house, you're still patiently bearing with them, right? Right? You know what I'm talking about, some of you parents? (laughs) Uh, That's the way it works with discipleship. I am patiently bearing with you because I love you like Christ loves me. Thirdly, Christ's love transcended mere patience with their failings. It also meant his unconditional forgiveness for their sins against him. See, Jesus had no bitterness or grudge against Peter when Peter denied him. There was only love and forgiveness. And scripture says in John 13, 1, that Christ loved all of his disciples, even Judas the betrayer, until the very end. If we're going to be effective disciple makers, we can't hold grudges. We can't be bitter and unforgiving. We've got to release that and love those who've wronged us just like Jesus did. That's not easy, but it can be done the more we focus on our Lord. But loving someone doesn't mean we let them do whatever they want without consequence. Fourthly, Christ's love for his disciples meant holding them accountable. Lovingly rebuking them and pointing out their sin when they needed it done. It meant calling them to repentance and walking with them to a place of right living and right thinking. When Peter challenged Christ's statement that he would have to die, do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, get behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan. And he said, get get your mind off of these worldly lies that you're believing and focus on the heavenly truth that is before you. My paraphrase, but that's basically what he said. Sometimes loving others means confronting them in their sin and graciously leading them to the truth. That's Galatians 6.1. Finally, lastly, Christ's love for his disciples meant meeting them exactly where they were and just living life with them. Just being with them. Jesus, Jesus laughed and joked with his disciples. He, he ate with them and he comforted them and he cried with them and he rejoiced with them and he prayed with them and he, he prayed for them and interceded on their behalf. And we need to do the same thing. 
So, so what does that look like? Well, it doesn't mean that every single moment I'm with another believer, we need to be talking about Jesus and having deep conversation about doctrine and theology. That's good sometimes. That's great. But that's not the way it needs to be all the time. We can just hang out and laugh and have fun and just be with one another. I mean, when someone is excited about getting a new car, I'm excited for them about getting that new car. And when that car breaks down, I want to be the first one that they call to go and pick them up. And when they're struggling and they are in the muck and the mire, guess where I am? I'm sitting in that muck right there with them. Sometimes I'm not saying a word. I'm just sitting. Sometimes I'm encouraging. And I'm always praying and lifting them up and asking the Lord to strengthen their faith. That is what living life with each other means. All five of these things are examples of how Jesus loved his disciples and how we're called to love one another, but especially those who we're discipling. Because at the end of the day, we are all going to be evaluated for our distinctness. Our lives are like that restaurant that asks for the world's feedback. And the world is watching to see if it is even worth its time to fill out the form. Is there anything that's different about these Christians? Will our evaluation prove that we can be distinguished by our love for one another? That's the question. Does my life reflect the transformational love of Jesus Christ working in me and through me, or am I just like any other spiritual person out there? Do I truly love one another? That's what's going to get the attention of the world and show us to be distinct. That is what is going to draw people to Jesus Christ when we are transformed by his love for us so that we can be the overflowing cup and love one another. Let's be the overflowing cup. Amen? As we close, I just want to pray through 1 Thessalonians 3, and you can see it on the screen behind me. This, is a, this, is, this was Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. I just want us to take down the lights. I just want us to look at this and just pray through it. And this is how you read through Scripture. And let Scripture speak into you. So let's just pray this together. Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he died for us. And Father, I pray that that love would fill us and would abound and increase in us that love for one another, that we would be distinct. And not only that we would have love for one another, but that we would have love for all. Even as Paul modeled to the people that he was discipling, I pray, Lord, that we would have that same kind of love for our disciples. So that you would establish our hearts, Lord, as holy and set apart before you. That we can have confidence that in the day that you return, the second coming of Jesus Christ, we can stand 
and say, Hallelujah, my Lord has come. Lord, let our lives overflow with your love being poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him, that we would be transformed by his love for us. Amen.